From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. In this episode of Land Stories, we are going to begin a two-part series looking at the history of Interstate 496, a uh, urban freeway that goes through the heart of the city of Lansing. Although our look at 496 isn't going to be about pavement and lanes and traffic volume, instead we're looking at what happened to the neighborhood that the highway uh, severely disrupted, actually destroyed uh, in many ways, when that freeway was put through. And on part one of this episode, I am joined by an, a very special guest I'm glad to have on the program, Patrick Sambier. Hello. Hello, Patrick. And Patrick worked with the Historical Society of Greater Lansing uh, for a certain part of that project that I'll get into in a moment. But first, I'd like to provide a little bit of a background to what this project that I'm referring to was. So Interstate 496 was an urban and is an urban freeway that was put through as part of the Interstate Highway Act, the Interstate Highway Act was passed in the late 1950s when Dwight David Eisenhower was president, and it was a very long-term uh, public works project. In fact, the uh, interstate highways are still around, and they're still maintained with federal dollars and state dollars, and, and they form an uh, absolute vital part of the infrastructure of the United States. But uh, as with any infrastructure project... People oftentimes get displaced when it involves the acquisition of and the development of substantial amounts of property. And the interstate highway system was unique because when it came to the acquisition of public and private property to put the interstates through, the reality was some of the interstate highways were put through farmland or forest that did not have people living on it at the time, but then others were put right through the hearts of American cities, and the exact opposite was the case. You had very many people living in the path of where an interstate highway would go. And in the year 2022, there is quite a bit of discussion in many cities around the United States as to what to do with the urban freeways that were put through in the middle part of the last century. So, for example, recently, the city of Detroit and the Michigan Department of Transportation worked out an agreement that the little stretch of freeway that connects Jefferson Avenue to I-75 is going to be taken out. It's one of the shortest stretches of interstate freeway in the entire United States, and the whole purpose of that freeway was to connect a major corridor in downtown Detroit to I-75, which runs right through the eastern part of the city of Detroit. But here in Lansing, I-496 has undergone an entire uh, rebuild over the last Three years in 2020, the stretch that runs between the, just to the west of the city of Lansing, right through to where the uh, freeway merges into I-69, was completely rebuilt. And this year, the other end of the freeway is being rebuilt. The stretch that runs from that western uh, border of the city of Lansing right through to East Lansing. So over the past three years, therefore, that freeway would have been almost entirely rebuilt. And that means it's going to be here for a while. Now, the Historical Society of Greater Lansing worked with the city of Lansing 
to obtain grant money through the National Endowment for the Humanities to work on a history project that tells the story of the construction of Interstate 496. But as I mentioned a moment ago, the history project was not to look at the concrete and exit ramps and on-ramps and traffic volumes and lanes and all the stuff that goes into engineering a freeway, although we looked at a little bit of that as well. The primary purpose of this project was to look at what happened to that neighborhood. What happened to the people, therefore, that lived where Interstate 496 runs? And the project was called Paving the Way, I-496. And it is a, a very unique and special project that involved, by the time uh, we've gotten now about three years into the project, interviews of many of the people who lived in the neighborhood that was displaced by Interstate 496, and the compilation of an incredible amount of historical artifacts, including many photos of the streetscapes, the houses, and the businesses that were displaced or torn down entirely when that freeway was put through. And one of the things I've always found a little bit ironic about the name of that freeway, it's called the Olds Freeway. And those of you who live in the Lansing area and know a little bit about the history of our community know that Ransom Eli Olds, his property itself, uh, well, the house that he had built, was a very famous house. It was one of the Darius Moon-designed mansions in this community. It was ultimately demolished when the freeway was put through. So I am going to bring Patrick into our conversation now. And Patrick, I want you to uh, tell us a little bit about how you became involved in the Paving the Way project. Uh, well, basically, it was my junior year of college at University of Michigan Flint, and uh, I was looking for any kind of internship work or anything that I could do to do a little bit of the work of history. And so I was chatting with David, I believe it was over email, and um, I inquired with him about that, and he said, I know that my friend Bill Castanier with the Lansing Historical Society, he's looking for someone to help him out with the interviews. And I said, I'd be glad to do that. Sure. And very glad that you took me and him, uh, that would be Bill Castanier of the Historical Society of Greater Lansing, up on the offer. And as a programming note, I will have Bill Castanier on the next episode of Land Stories, which will be part two uh, of this series on the Paving the Way I-496 project. So that's how you got involved in this project, Patrick. And tell me a little bit about the work you did first as an intern for the Historical Society of Greater Lansing, and then we'll get into some of the stories that you um, were a part of recording into history and what your activity uh, with that looked like. I make it sound like a very noble endeavor on my part. Uh, it was not very much of that. It was pretty simple. Um, actually, by the time I joined the project, all of the interviews and the work had basically been done, and so it was all uploaded onto YouTube. There were a couple, uh, about 100 videos, and I just helped out with the subtitles basically for probably about maybe a dozen of them. Okay. So the interviews then were recorded uh, on video and then put on a, a YouTube channel, correct? That's right, yep. And was this a separate YouTube channel that was uh, set aside solely for this purpose, or is it part of a, a YouTube channel that the Historical Society has set up and they're able to have other videos that are related to their work. Uh, it's its own YouTube channel. It's basically just called the I-4096 Pave the Way. Okay, cool. So 
I have to ask you, as questions pop in my mind, which is what tends to happen in a discussion like this involving two historians, what struck you about the, uh, let's just say the experience, as much as you could glean from it, uh, in, in watching those interviews and transcribing them, the experience of the people who lived through this incredibly disruptive, and that almost sounds like a term that really diminishes the extent at which this would have impacted their life. But let's just say living through the experience is something that would have a permanent change on their lives. What Was there something that seemed like a common theme, I guess is what I'm getting at, um, for the people that were interviewed when they were discussing this experience? Uh, well, basically, I think you can imagine kind of the first emotional reaction that someone might have when they hear about a highway being put up or any kind of large project that as a necessity has to get rid of people's homes and businesses. And you'll find that in some cases that was the case, but there were also a lot of positives that were the result of the freeway coming up and the neighborhood and black residents moving out into other parts of Lansing. Sure, and we'll get into that in a moment. And it's important to uh, reiterate or, or expand upon a little bit that last point you make. The, the neighborhood that Interstate 496 was put through was a predominantly black neighborhood, especially uh, where 496 is now uh, more or less between Washington and to the west, right through to where the old Lansing Road exit is now. So that is... There isn't much left of that neighborhood. There are two roads that run parallel to Interstate 496. There's St. Joseph on the north side of the highway, and there's what was left of the old main street of Lansing. It was renamed Malcolm X Avenue here about 10 years ago or so. So 496 then was put right through the heart of this neighborhood that was predominantly African-American. And besides houses, what else was located in this neighborhood that made it such a, a viable community? Well, there was, uh, for one, the very popular Johnny's Records, which was the only jazz and blues location that catered to black residents anywhere close to Lansing, I assume. Sure. And other businesses as well? Uh, also, Roy Johnson's Barbershop was on, on the same street. Mm -hmm. And then I believe uh, maybe some other churches. Okay, that... sure. And and there were some other retail stores there as well. And, and what you had in that neighborhood was a a blend in the way that American cities had in neighborhoods uh, before World War II, especially a blend of mostly locally owned retail businesses, uh, including record stores and convenience stores and small grocery stores, uh, service businesses such as barbershops. And then the neighborhood also, of course, had schools in it. So there were neighborhood schools there that would also, well, be demolished when the freeway was put through and the background behind the construction of urban freeways in the United States is a very complicated one. And I had mentioned at the beginning of our episode that in some cities around the United States, there's a reevaluation going on right now of what that uh, landscape that the freeways created looked like before and after. And that evaluation uh, in many cities, and I use the taking out of I-375 freeway in downtown Detroit as an example, sometimes entails people taking a step back and figuring out with the 2020 vision of hindsight, as the old saying goes, whether or not those freeways were ultimately a good thing, or if there might be some reconsideration. Were in your interviews, and in the interviews you looked at, I should say, uh, that were conducted, 
as part of the Paving the Way I-496 project, did you encounter people having their own thoughts, that retrospective look back at the broader issues that the construction of I-496 centered around? Uh, well, it has to be said that the uh, majority black makeup of the neighborhood was due to racist practices of redlining in which the real estate brokers and other mortgage agents guided residents to the area and wouldn't let them live basically anywhere else. And so the construction of the freeway and the eventual move out of the residents into other areas of Lansing was a way to diversify the whole community. Sure. And it absolutely had that um, consequence to it when you look at where the people who were uh, displaced out of that neighborhood ended up moving to. And, and you bring up something else that was quite prominent for a very long time in the United States as cities develop in, in this term redlining. So explain that a little bit more if you can for us. Well, if you were to imagine a red line drawn on a map, that would basically be if you were black, you had to live within it. And if you were white, you couldn't. So sure. it's a way, like, it a way of segregating the city. Yeah, and and the red lines, as they literally appeared on maps, were typically drawn up by either real estate companies, real estate agents, or sometimes even by by city officials, by urban planners. And the United States in the two decades after the Second World War is in a very interesting position because you have a sort of three or four major phenomenon going on. You have an incredible amount of economic growth, and that economic growth uh, came from a variety of factors, including the pent-up demand for consumer goods that built during World War II when the economy had been converted over entirely to war goods production. People couldn't go out and buy things like cars and washing machines and all the other consumer goods that were available had they been able to purchase them. And so when the war comes to an end and wartime production is converted back over to civilian production, you have this uh, really unique circumstance in the history of industrial capitalism in the United States of an incredible amount of consumer demand. The second phenomenon is also related to the first phenomenon, and that is population growth. So the generation of Americans that were born between 1946 and 1964, the baby boomers. And the name comes from the great baby boom that uh, people went through as the soldiers returned from the Second World War, uh, soldiers and sailors and, and uh, star families. So the big boom of births and then the generation that bears the name from that, the baby boomers, it's another phenomenon that's really dramatically transforming American society. And it, again, it, it's tied very closely to population or to uh, economic growth, because population growth oftentimes equals economic growth. And then that leads to the third phenomenon that is going through American cities at this time, and that is a tremendous transformation in housing. Housing writ large, meaning housing in terms of what kind of houses people live in, housing in terms of where people are living, and houses in terms of uh, what happens to the existing neighborhoods in American cities. And that lends us to the fourth phenomenon that is going on at this time period, and that is the uh, leaving of American inner city neighborhoods by many of the more affluent residents and moving out into the suburbs. So you have this 
dynamic of these four major factors going on, and then the Interstate Highway Act is passed. And that equals lots and lots of money from the federal government to construct freeways, many of which will end up going through urban areas, such as the downtowns of American cities or right on the edges of downtown, such as 496. So all these factors combine to make the placement of freeways a very political, as much as an economic, or let's just say a uh, public works decision. And when urban planners uh, in cities worked with the federal and the state officials to lay out where the urban freeways were going to go, oftentimes the neighborhoods that those freeways were put through were purposefully selected because of who lived there. And the who that I'm referring to would be, for example, black neighborhoods, and also neighborhoods that were deemed by the local municipalities to have lower property values, which were, at the time, oftentimes, though not always, disproportionately minority or black neighborhoods. And so this brings us to eminent domain, which is the law statute and the law theory that's used for a public entity to acquire private property for the purposes of constructing a public works. In this case, the public works is the freeway. Now, oftentimes in American cities, therefore, when urban freeway projects were planned, they disproportionately impacted minority communities and African-American communities in particular, especially in cities like Lansing, where after the Second World War, you have a continuation of this uh, massive migration north into cities that had started actually going back decades before the Second World War, which is what brings uh, a major demographic change to cities such as Lansing. So if you looked at Lansing in the year 1910, for example, it would have very few African-American residents living in it. By the time you get to 1940, that quotient has changed. There are now many African-American residents living in the city. And after the Second World War, that migration north out of the south of African-Americans looking for work in places like the automobile factories, for example, in Lansing, continues. So that neighborhood then that Interstate 496 is put through is a neighborhood that by the time you get to the construction of the freeway has existed for a long time and has multiple generations of families living there. In the interviews that you were able to look through in doing the transcription, were you able to uh, tease out of those interviews a sense of this multi-generational aspect of the neighborhood and what that meant to the people who lived there that would have their homes displaced because of the freeway? Uh, yeah, so there were positives in that when the freeway went up, black residents were able to move into other parts of the city. But a negative aspect of that, which I definitely got the sense of during the, the interviews, which was that when they did spread out, there were fewer tight-knit communities and less of a sense of you knew everybody on the block, in which, which was the case before. And I'm sure that that um, was something that never left the minds of the individuals who went through that experience. Meaning even now, decades after the freeway was built and their homes were displaced, this is something they're still able to uh, vividly recall and remember what that felt like at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think they would probably tell you that it was a definite change, but that there were positives and negatives to 
both sides of that. Sure, sure. And I, um, about probably, I want to say maybe it was three or four months ago, I engaged in a uh, conversation on one of the social media platforms actually about this very thing. It was with, um, the conversation was with people who have lived in the Lansing community for a long time and and uh, are knowledgeable of the history of the construction of the freeway. And, and our conversation um, through the various uh, messaging platforms that one can include into a uh, social media form centered around whether or not people thought the freeway was a good idea. And my observation as a historian is that at the time, 1950s, 1960s America, people looked at urban freeways as progress. The United States had made the decision, whether people realized it at the time or not, and I think many people did, it was hard not to, that America's infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, was going to be built around the automobile when it came to devices that moved on the ground, and then, of course, air transportation as well, and that the uh, jet age, so to speak, is really one that starts in the late 1950s and into the early 60s when you have commercial aircraft that are now jets entering into service. So the, the train was gone, and the automobile was here when it came to surface transportation improvements. And so when you look at a city like Lansing that's developing, people looked at the construction of an urban freeway as progress. Look at us. We've made it big. We have an urban freeway that will go right through downtown, and you can zip across one end of town to the other in about a matter of 10 minutes. So I've heard you mention a few times in my questioning about what the uh, sense that you got from looking through these interviews was of the people and what they thought of the construction project. And did this ever come up in these interviews? I'm curious uh, as to whether or not there's this idea that with the freeway being built, progress is moving forward. Definitely. Even I would say that in the minds of these people up until the present day, I I can hardly remember where I heard about them talk about the freeway itself negatively. Okay, sure. And I always wonder, and this is just me kind of thinking. Actually, I'd like to Go ahead. Uh, amend Go. that statement. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Go ahead. One lady did say that she didn't drive on the freeway because she thought it was too dangerous. Okay. Yep. There you go. And, you know, this, it makes me think of, and what I was going to say is, I always wonder that in a city like Lansing, which has had a long history of automobile production, and, and of course, the Olds Freeway is named after Ransom Eli Olds, who still has things in this city named after him. And Olds founded two automobile companies, one of which was very quickly bought by General Motors, quickly meaning shortly after it was founded, and it became the Oldsmobile brand, headquartered right here in Lansing, Michigan, until General Motors discontinued the brand in the early part of the century. And then GM would uh, go on to have a lawn presence here in Lansing. Of course, GM still has a very significant presence here in Lansing with the Grand River assembly plant right downtown. Um, right off the freeway, actually, the main entrance is just uh, maybe 30 or 40 feet from the berm. Uh, uh, a couple I, different people yeah. that were interviewed had jobs at GM. Sure. And then the Delta Township plan, of course, which was built at about the same time. So I've always wondered if in a place like Lansing, Michigan, the construction of the freeway has more of a, a view of being an, an example of local progress or local prosperity than maybe if uh, a freeway was put a through a city of, of the size of Lansing that didn't have um, automobile production in it. And 
I'll ask you your thoughts on that, Patrick, and and not exclusively even to the sense you got from the interviews, but just your thoughts on it as a student of history. And what do you think about that? About freeways in general? Yeah, freeways in general, and in Michigan in particular, where urban freeways are going through cities that have automobile production in it. I, I guess what I'm getting at is, do you think that in some way makes people more... Um, more likely, more inclined to view those freeways as a, as a net positive as opposed to a net negative. In Lansing, sure, because of our, I, would, I don't want to say obsession, but fascination with automobiles. Sure. And and fascination, I think, is a good term. And, and how can we not be fascinated with them? Because the, the building of cars has been such an important part of many people's lives in this community. Although I will add generally that if I were to hear a negative about freeways, it's that kind of the use of freeways and maybe highways in general kind of lead to a auto-centric lifestyle in which you can't really expect to get around without one now. There are not too many walkable places where you can buy groceries or visit local businesses. And during uh, previous to the construction of freeway that was definitely the case yeah yeah absolutely especially when we were talking about the neighborhood businesses that were located where i-496 ended up going through and this is a similar experience uh you know connecting lansing here to other communities in michigan a similar experience to what happened in flint what happened in grand rapids what happened in saginaw what happened in detroit you know all the places in michigan that ended up having stretches of urban freeway go through them and and uh, detroit was sort of the greatest example of them all because the stretch of i-75 that was laid through the eastern part of the city uh ended up demolishing the heart of the black business corridor in detroit uh, hastings street but here in lansing the same thing happened with 496 going through and demolishing the heart of one of the most important black neighborhoods in the city and you know, American cities took on a character uh, very unique to other cities in the developed world after World War II, very much because of the construction of freeways. In other parts of the world, it is not as common to have uh, access-controlled freeways going through the right through the middle of city centers. And I, I just think of, for example... A city like London, which is the size of New York City, and London does not have one freeway that goes into the uh, heart of what we would call downtown in the United States. And New York City, of course, has many freeways that take you from the boroughs of the part of the metropolitan region, including uh, New Jersey, that will take you right into the center of New York City. And when those freeways were constructed, they had a similarly disruptive well, a fact for the people that live in the neighborhoods as 496 did here on a smaller scale. So it's the freeway is such an important part of post-war America, uh, right up there with um, some of the other stuff that we've been able to talk about here today. Any uh, lasting thoughts you want to share with us? Our, our time's almost up, but um, anything else has struck out that I haven't been able to uh, tease out of you in my questioning so far in this episode uh, that you were able to notice in looking through those interviews? Well, firstly, I want to say that when the offers were made to buy the houses, the feeling at the time was that they were being undervalued. And that's when the community leaders like uh, Rudy Wilson, who I believe was the chapter president of the NAACP, 
Mm -hmm. uh, him and some others actually went door to door and handed out pamphlets and talked to people, telling them, don't accept the first offer on your house until you talk to someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so after the fact, there was then the sense that they kind of got a pretty good deal out of it. Okay. Yeah. And, and that's something that, um, actually, it's a good thing to leave off our uh, part one of the episode on, because we'll pick that up uh, on part two of the episode, or part two of the series, I should say, of episodes here on Land Stories, where we look at the construction of Interstate 496, uh, Lansing, Michigan's urban freeway, and in particular, looking at the work of the Paving the Way Interstate 496 project. Patrick, I want to thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, uh, everyone, um, well, we will uh, pick this up on the next episode of Land Stories. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. Keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College is proud to present We're Better Than That, an anti-bigotry campaign. Embracing diversity is a continuing process, one that requires honesty, cooperation, and meaningful conversations. At Lansing Community College, we understand our journey towards inclusion and equity begins with an examination of how we relate to one another and a pledge to engage in the work necessary for meaningful progress to facilitate conversations and initiatives that will combat racism and hate speech in our college community. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion has partnered with the Office of Police and Public Safety to create We're Better Than That a comprehensive campaign to combat institutional bias and racism. To find out more about We're Better Than That, visit lcc.edu. Attention men under the age of 35. You know what really impresses the ladies? When a guy has a few drinks and later gets pulled over for buzz driving. That could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. There goes let's grab dinner and a movie. Oh, I know. You drive more carefully when you're buzzed. You've proven that hundreds of times. A woman admires that kind of confidence. And you've practiced how to speak if a cop does pull you over. Slowly, clearly, and politely like, good evening, officer. A woman admires that kind of foresight. And what woman doesn't find it adorable that you call it buzzed even though the law calls it drunk? You could kiss $10,000 goodbye, along with any chance of having a girlfriend. Because nothing says, I'm a catch, more than a guy who lives in his parents' basement and calls it my place. Buzzed, busted, and broke. Because buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. The Lansing Community College Foundation provide scholarships that make education possible, change students' lives, and uplift our community. Students may apply for scholarships November 1st through January 31st. 
Learn more at lcc.edu slash scholarships. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Amy Wagoner from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. The book was a bestseller, and no American household could be without a copy. In its day, the only book that sold more copies per year was the Bible. Alvin Wood Chase was born in Cayuga, New York in 1817. He made his living peddling groceries and household drugs, an occupation that brought him into contact with people from all walks of life. In talking with customers, Chase picked up a wide variety of useful home remedies and household hints. He and his family settled in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1856, hoping to earn a medical degree from the University of Michigan. He audited his classes since he had never learned the Latin that U of M then required for its medical school students. The medical profession was not rigorous in those carefree days of the mid-19th century. After completing a four-month course at the Eclectic Medical Institute in Cincinnati in 1857, he returned to Ann Arbor as Dr. Alvin Chase. But Dr. Chase would earn fame and fortune not as a physician, but as the compiler and publisher of a book. When he had first moved to Ann Arbor in 1856, he had published a little pamphlet with 17 of his favorite home remedies and sold it for a dollar. In 1858, he produced a larger pamphlet titled A Guide to Wealth, Over 100 Recipes for Saloons, Innkeepers, Grocers, Druggists, Merchants, and for Families Generally. By 1863, Dr. Chase's recipes had become a 384-page book with some 800 recipes. In its pages, readers could find recipes and hints for such things as bread making, furniture stain, and a wide variety of medicines for both humans and animals, ways to detect counterfeit currency, and the means to prevent steam boiler explosions. People said that every pioneer family heading for the West carried in its covered wagon a copy of Dr. Chase's recipes. By late 1868, the book had sold more than 325,000 copies. Plagued by ill health, Alvin Chase sold his business in 1869 for $35,000 cash and $30,000 worth of Minnesota real estate. He moved to Minnesota but soon returned to Ann Arbor. Dr. Chase died in 1885 with the final edition of Dr. Chase's Recipes debuting shortly after his death. By 1931, the book had sold some 4 million copies. This Michigan History Moment was brought to you by michiganhistorymagazine.org. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. November 16th through the 20th, Lansing Community College Performing Arts presents Everybody, an adaptation of Jacobs Jenkins' 15th century morality play, Everyman. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash show info. 
Why is Connor having trouble focusing in school? Having trouble finding Connor's middle school? Would you like directions? No, why is Connor having trouble focusing in school? Finding lowest airfare to Istanbul. No, I'm, I'm tired of fighting with him over homework. Home walk restaurant, need a review? No, I need help. He's very smart, but his mind wanders. He's disorganized. I think I understand. Oh, good. Finding best potatoes for french fries. No! Russet, fingerling, Yukon gold. Uh, why don't you understand me? Sorry, I was trying to show how Connor feels every day. Frustrating, isn't it? Redirecting to understood.org. For the one in five kids with learning and attention issues, this is what life can feel like. Explore understood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues designed to help your child thrive in school and in life. Understood.org, because understanding is everything. Brought to you by understood.org and the Ad Council. Michigan residents age 25 or older may qualify for Michigan Reconnect, a program providing free or reduced tuition to students who have not earned a prior college degree. Reconnect students are responsible for books and fees. Visit lcc.edu reconnect for more information. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hello and welcome to Community Conversations on LCC Connect. I'm your host, Bo Garcia, Dean of the Community Education and Workforce Development Division at Lansing Community College. Community Conversations is a space where we explore regional business, workforce, and community development initiatives and how they impact our quality of life and standard of living. Today, we'll be interviewing a dear friend and special guest, Bob Trezice, President and CEO of the Lansing Area Economic Partnership, or LEAP. Of note, LEAP was recognized as one of the 20 top economic development organizations in the nation, receiving the prestigious 2021 Site Selection Magazine Mac Conway Award. Thanks so much, Bob, for joining us, and welcome. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. So, Bob, you know, let's get right into it. First and foremost, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from and how you came to arrive at LEAP. Well, thank you, Bo. Um, well, I'd like to tell people I'm a Lansing kid. Uh, I grew up in the city of Lansing, um, and I went to Cumberland, Otto, Sexton, and I am super proud of that legacy. I think it, I think the Lansing Public Schools, in my experience at Sexton, uh, really shaped who I am today. And uh, somebody who... Um, really understands how to get along with people and how to communicate. And, and uh, I, I, so I always like to thank you for inviting me to, to say that part of my life. It's very important. I went on to Michigan State, James Madison College graduate, and a master's degree public administration from Western Michigan University. And then I started out uh, at the very nuts and bolts of economic development. I started and ran a, a really nice program for Delta Township for five years. And I had a brief stint with the uh, Regional Chamber of Commerce here, the Lansing Regional Chamber of Commerce, Capital Choice. Five amazing years at Michigan Economic Development Corporation where I got to get out of Lansing and visit Detroit and Grand Rapids and, and St. Ignace and Cape Casca and Traverse City and Marquette and everywhere around the state. 
and learned so much about economic development. And then my whole life changed with when someone I had only met once, and he was recently elected as mayor then, Mayor Bonero, called me almost out of the blue and said, a lot of people think highly of you, and, and uh, would you like to run your hometown organization's economic development agency uh, for the city of Lansing? And I broke every rule under the sun, Bo. I didn't talk to my wife. We didn't talk money. And I said yes on the spot because it was my dream job to come home. And, you know, I thought Lansing, in not just the city, but the region, had been a little sleepy, especially as I compared it to what I had seen for five years across the state in Grand Rapids and Ann Arbor and areas like that. I'm convinced and I know I'm preaching the choir with you, but we've been friends for 25 years, right? And, and you have been one of my greatest partners of all time in economic development. But, you know, we've talked. I, I don't get it, Bo. We, 70, 60 years ago, we were the same size as Columbus and Indianapolis and Madison. And that really throws people for a loop. But that's the truth of the matter. And uh, we have the same assets that they do. We have a major university, an incredible community college, Lansing Community College, Michigan State University. We have Fortune 500 corporate headquarters here. We have um, state government. We have a lot of high technology companies. I mean, why, why did, the, did that not gel the way it did in those other communities? Now, do we want to be a community of 3 million like Columbus? No, I don't think so. But, you know, we've been stagnant for those 60, 70 years at basically 400, 440,000 people, three counties. I mean, would it be so wrong to be six or 700,000 people? Because uh, people, that's how you, you know, population in, is the key to economic development. And you either have enough people to sustain night in and night out nice restaurants and arts and culture and music and everything that we want in life. You have to have people to generate a sustainable level of spending, if I can be blunt about it. And the more diverse your population is, the stronger your, your, your uh, abilities are gonna be to support all kinds of business. And as it turns out, most youngish technology kinds of companies, and that's really every company now, what isn't a technology company, including in our amazing insurance headquarters that are here, um, they follow talent, people. So you better have population growth, and the population growth happens because you're a great place, but it, you have to have proper jobs. But really, most of the jobs now, the companies locate and grow where that population base is and where you're a great place. And I think that the last 10 years in our Lansing region that we've grasped that and uh, my last 10 years, I've been CEO of LEAP, Lansing Economic Area Partnership, which represents Ingham, Eaton, and Clinton County. Weirdly, after I ran the city of Lansing's economic development for six years, we brought the city of Lansing's economic development department over with LEAP. So we're a regional agency, and yet we run the city of Lansing's economic development. Now we also run Ingham County's economic development and have a similar contract running the Lansing Regional Smart Zone. So we're regional, but have these individual um, moments. So uh, I have an incredible wife, Carrie, for we've been married 30 years next year and um, four amazing kids. And uh, one of them enrolled right here at LCC and I'm super excited. And um, I, uh, on the side, somehow I am a little published poet. So there, there's my life story. My gosh. Excellent.
Excellent. Well, well rounded, well balanced, and you, and you're right, Bob. Nobody knows a community like, like you know, kind of a homegrown, you know, native. They know they know where all the all the uh, bumps and bruises are and the opportunities. You grow up seeing it, so nobody better at the helm than you. Well, you can, you know, Bo, like you. Um, you really have an opportunity to build trust, which is so crucial to economic development. And sometimes a lot of economic development can be confidential situations um, with important companies. And as you're trying to recruit them and you're competing with other regions and other states, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to ask a municipal leader or others to do something for you to help put the proposal together. And yet, very weirdly, you can't tell them who or what it's for. And that requires a level of trust. And and I think that has been an advantage for me being here and my family being here is is uh, there's a sense of trust. And you have that as well, Bo. And that's a, that's a key word, Bob. I think that uh, that's a pillar. You know, it's integrity. And, and when a community is led by you know, individuals like yourselves, we, we, we trust you. Or we trust the, the ethics of your organization. You know, the, the outcomes come, and, and, uh, and it's very mutually. We feel very mutually about, about you and your team. Well, Lansing Community College is one of those major assets here. Downtown Lansing, the physicality of the campus now would rival any major university in the country. And I know times have been tough the last couple of years. We're all goofed up with the pandemic and online and everything else. But the fact of the matter is I am absolutely convinced that Lansing Community College is positioned, mm-hmm. um, especially with the issue of affordability of major universities and you know, and a lot of issues going on that you know so well, better than I. But I really think that this campus is going to be an absolute magnet for people. And I'm super excited what's going to happen here in the campus of LCC. Oh, thank you, Bob. I, I couldn't agree with you more. We are uh, poised for the next level. You are. Yeah, thank you. Now, now Bob, in terms of in LEAP's mission and its purpose, you've, there have been some tremendous wins in terms of investment dollars and jobs created you know, since, you, since you've been uh, running shop. Tell us a little bit, just so listeners know, I'm like, what, like what, in terms of dollars and investment, how does that look? Well, in my 10 years at at, uh, Lansing Economic Area Partnership, which represents Clinton, Eaton, and Ingham County, so we're a regional economic agency, um, we have scored so many companies that that has totaled up to $3 billion of private investment to our region, and that has created uh, just over 6,000 direct jobs. That does not count multiplier effects of construction jobs required for all those plants. This year alone, Bo, um, LEAP and our partners at Delta Township uh, landed the Amazon Super Center facility, a million square feet that is under construction now and ultimately is going to be a massive amount of jobs. But we also last week announced Connect, uh, which is K-O-N-N-E-C-H, which is a really sweet software development company that we're expanding here and did a package for them. TechSmith Project, which was one of the world's great software development companies, we put that uh, package together for them that is allowing them to build a brand new headquarters here in our region. Um, We landed McKesson Manufacturing Facility. We landed a few years ago the fifth largest company from Ireland uh, that is now the nation's largest dairy production facility up in St. John's. Um, and so we are on a real roll. But economic development, Bo, as you know, is intentional. I think there's sometimes a perception that it just happens or there's some handshakes. 
um, or I'm not really sure what, but the profession is very intentional and certified, mm -hmm. and uh, you really have to know what you're doing. Um, of course, you have to have a great product to pitch, the Lansing region, and we do. But so we've had great success, but both that's one piece of leap. The other piece of leap is entrepreneurialism. Right. So I always think of economic development in terms of brick and mortar. And the brick is, of course, we're supposed to land big buildings and make, you know, change skylines and add thousands of jobs and new headquarters and advanced manufacturing and technologies. We do all that. That's the brick. But the brick doesn't stand very well without the mortar. And the mortar is people in place and entrepreneurialism. And so LEAP has put in place magnificent entrepreneurial programs mm -hmm. uh, that our region really lacked. And there's been many partners who work on all of this stuff. So when I keep talking about LEAP, I, I mean all of us together. But LEAP is very common, uh, the, the centerpiece or the tip of the spear. But our LEAP entrepreneurial programs are now nationally recognized. Right. They do a great job of diversity, equity, and inclusion in an intentional way, which is so critical to us. Our one and all program, um, t uh, the only way you can get in that entrepreneurial development program is to be at or below the Alice threshold, mm -hmm. which is essentially working poor. We have to make sure that everyone, everyone, all people, mm -hmm. in an equitable way, not just equality, but an equitable way, are mm -hmm. participating in our economy and our society. And you have to have intentional programs and budgets and leadership and staff that does that. And we do at LEAP. But then we also do placemaking is the third bucket of LEAP, which is everything ranging from a poet laureate program from our region um, to putting three $10,000 permanent sculptures outdoors in strategic locations that helps enhance the image or the um the a signal to people both right. here and business as well right. that you know we're sophisticated that we're creative and and to create a great place for great people and if you do that again you will the third bucket the first bucket you'll be able to create great jobs and attract business mm -hmm. and that equation that formula is working on all cylinders right now, Bo, for our region. Yeah, absolutely. I, well, you can see it. And to say nothing of the uh, $182 million revitalization of the uh, Lansing Riverfront Power Station, I think you were number, national number one runner-up for, that, uh, for well, that particular program. I mean, that was uh, you know 15 years ago in my other life with the city of Lansing, but I thank you for bringing that up. It's kind of the pinnacle of my career. Um, you know, that was a 14-story, beautiful Art Deco building mm -hmm. that um, when I started working with the city of Lansing, the first editorial that greeted our new administration was, tear it down. <laughs> right. That's what you should do. That You know, that, in, in some respects, that represented the old Lansing. I remember. Which, it, which was one that had maybe somewhat given up. Mm -hmm. and, and that eyesore on the skyline, it had a big smokestack on it, a coal pile plant next to it. It's in the heart of downtown, right down the river. Right. And, and by transforming that with the accident fund into a place of 600 jobs and $182 million of investment, a national headquarters, and the smokestack gone and the, the um, environmental contamination cleaned up on the site and the board building historically reclaimed. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Now it's a building of possibility. It, it reflects on the skyline for the whole region and the city what is possible. Mm -hmm. And so that project was very symbolic of maybe a new era of economic development in the region. 
You bet. And, you know, Bob, you mentioned something about something very, very uh, important, you know, equity, inclusion. As it relates to, so for our listeners, you know, why is uh, this particular type of economic development, this type of activity important to our listeners? You know, how does it affect their, their employment, their wages, their education, poverty levels, crime rate, you know, economic development? How does that impact? Well, there's a lot of information about, um, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of gun violence in cities across America, including here in Lansing right now. And, and there's no question, you know, everyone, what do we do? What, can we, what, what is the cause? How do we stop it? And there is no question about it that statistically or data or analysis shows that a job in the neighborhoods is the best thing that we can do. But that takes, you know, a lot of hard work and it's very complex uh, to get something like that done. But the other part of the equation is, Bo, as we all know, for, you know, for 400 years, uh, there, there was slavery, mm-hmm. 300 years, and then 100 years of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the discrimination and prejudice mm-hmm. uh, worldwide, really, right. but of course, including in this country, particularly savage, one could argue to some extent. Of course. But it's a great country, too. I mean, I yeah, don't mean so. to be, you know, but I, I mean, we have of to talk reality so we bet. can get to a positive place. Absolutely. And the point of all that is, rather than getting into the politics of it, is that there was a large, very significant segment of our society that has not had the opportunity to fully access and participate in the economy, mm-hmm. and thus this society. Mm-hmm. And the way I look at it, to be crass about it, but to try to be illustrated, is if you're a small business owner and you're about to open up your doors in the morning and you want to make money to support your family and so forth, and if there are 10 people outside your door ready to come in, what store owner in their right mind would go outside and put up their hand and say, ah, I only would like six of you to come in. Right. The exactly. four I don't want. Right. I mean, who would possibly right. make that economic equation in their mind? Right. Any store owner would want all 10. You bet. Who cares who they are, what they look like, sure. where they're from, their skin color, their whatever the issues are. And, and so... We have to make up for history, though, Mm -hmm. and to try to drive in particular or especially economic development programs from a budgetary, programmatic and staffing perspective Mm -hmm. that helps lift up those four of those 10 that have been left behind for a long time, not left behind, shut out and bring them on board. And, and that takes a lot of hard work, uh, and uh, LEAP is really good at it. And this has to be a part of our economic development uh, progress into the future. I mean, we want the, the pie to be bigger If is another way to look at it. And I don't know who would be opposed to that. Absolutely. But you've got to work harder to fix the damage that has been done from the past, and that is equity. And so it's all wonderful. It's great. It, it's not a subtraction of anybody. It's not taking away from somebody. Right. It's adding to everything that we already have. Absolutely. And I don't know who wouldn't be for that, to be frankly uh, frank about it. I couldn't agree with you more, Bob. And I'll tell you, that's what I love about what LEAP does. It is about business development. It is about workforce development. It is about community development. You're absolutely right. All those contribute to the quality of life and standard of living of our, of our community members. And, you know, that's a solution. It's a real grassroots solution. It, 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 it feeds babies in the morning. I mean, it is just a tremendous It keeps you thing. in school. It keeps right your, your spot on. It keeps 
uh, it keeps uh, uh, somebody paying their rent. Exactly. And it keeps food in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And if the kid has food in their stomach in the morning, they're going to be more likely to go to school and do well in school. Yes. And all of this comes down to a job. Um, yep. And so now there are many other issues, housing, child care, sure. you know, health care. I mean, all these issues is art and culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these issues add up. And I think it's all about economic development. Uh, and um, it's just a, I, I try to both explain the economic development. I know it's public perception um, or reputation is is about big business and developers, you know, and all that. And, of course, it is. I mean, sure. except there's one big difference. That's a means to an end. Absolutely. And, and actually, the profession of economic development was created so to improve the prosperity and the well-being of yes. the community, your hometown that you represent, yes. and the people within it. Absolutely. So it's a, economic development is connecting, you know, a means to an end. We want to make sure that we're a great community for business to grow. And we want to make sure that we're a great, great place for entrepreneurs and developers. But at the end of the day, our ultimate mission is, did all that add up to a better and greater place for the community and especially all people within that community? And for us, that's Ingham, Eaton, and Clinton County. Bob, beautifully said. I couldn't agree with you more. You, you just nailed it. And that just speaks to the critical nature of, of the work that you do. And I just want to you know, say thank you as a, as a, as a friend and a colleague uh, for all the hard work you and your team do. Absolutely stellar. So you know, we'll just, if you're okay, we'll bring you back another time and we'll talk a little bit more. <laughs> but thank you so much, Bob, for taking time to talk to our listeners today. And thank you all for the pleasure and privilege of your time. This has been your host, Bo Garcia, and I look forward to sharing time with you again soon. Lansing Community College. This is LCC Connect. LCC Connect. Voices, vibes, vision. Engaged learning and academic success is a priority at Lansing Community College. To help students navigate their educational career, LCC has created a proactive approach to learning and providing students with several academic support services. To find out what's available, visit lcc.edu services. With everything you've done to lift up those around you during your military career, we're not going to let your money concerns get you down. We're the NFCC, and we've got your back on this one. As your financial advocate, we're dedicated to improving the financial health of all members of the military community. Whether your debt issues are related to student loans or housing or involve credit cards, our goal is to help you to defend your financial future. NFCC certified credit counselors have already made the difference for thousands of military members and their families. Let us make a difference for you and yours. Schedule a confidential financial review with an objective nonprofit NFCC financial counselor. Call us today at 877-404-6322. That's 877-404-6322. Or visit us at nfcc.org slash military. You owe it to yourself. Get relief now. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect a weekly program that features the voices, 
vibes and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.